morning, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to be worshiping together. Let's hear God's word now. Our Old Testament reading is Psalm 110. We'll read the whole psalm together. Psalm 110. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. In our New Testament text, Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 46. Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Pray now with me and let's ask his blessing on it. Our great and gracious God, thank you that you have spoken your life-giving word the word of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have spoken it with power to raise up the dead. Father, apart from your sovereign spirit, we are dead in our trespasses and sins and deaf to your voice. But Lord, we pray that you would speak and give us life we pray that, that, that you, our good shepherd, would call us by name, speak, and may we hear your voice. We pray, Father, for your spirit to give us grace to listen to your word well, with hearts ready to receive it, to trust you, and to run in new obedience. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, the, the whole of Matthew's Gospel, is really designed to answer one question. And that question is, who is Jesus Christ? Who is he, this 
unique, one-of-a-kind individual that we see in these pages. And you can think of Matthew like a, like a master um, lawyer building his case. Evidence. More evidence. More evidence. More evidence. Or you can think of him like a, a, a master painter, painting a portrait of this, of this person. And, and, he's, and he's adding richness and color and depth and detail. And he's, and he's fleshing this out and he's painting this beautiful portrait of this person. And the point is that we see this person and we say, ah, oh, that's who that is. That's, that's Jesus the Christ. It's interesting then, isn't it? Um, that not everyone gets it. Um, usually, if you have a master painter and he does a portrait of someone, people aren't scratching their heads and wondering, well, who is this guy that you painted? Right? The guy says, I painted, I don't know, George Washington. And then you can look at the picture, you say, oh yeah, yeah, that looks just like him. Um, so why is it then that people read Matthew's Gospel, or people are in Matthew's Gospel, listening to Christ himself speak, testifying to who he is, and people are saying, well, we're not so sure who he is. Um, some find Jesus compelling. Some find him repulsive. Some love him. Some hate him. Some get him. Some are confused by him. We see the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed, of being a false teacher, of blasphemy, of all these things. Um, many people uh, since, since Jesus' day, reading Matthew's Gospel, have looked at it and said, oh, he's just a, he's just a good moral teacher. He teaches the universal fatherhood of God, the universal brotherhood of man, or he teaches us to look out for, uh, for the downtrodden. He, Jesus is a social revolutionary who says to, 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 to look out for the poor, the refugee, the women, the, uh, anyone who's, who's oppressed. All these people in Christ's day and since Christ's day debating who he is. Uh, so, so the question is, is it clear who Jesus is? Did Jesus make himself clear? Does the Gospel of Matthew make it clear? If so many people have debated it, is it just that we don't have a good picture? That the Gospel's not a clear picture? No, in fact, quite the opposite, isn't it? It's because the picture is so clear and the case is so rock solid that people resist it and reject it. The reason the Pharisees reject Jesus is not because it's not clear who he is, but it's all too clear to them who he is. And the same reason so many reject Jesus today is because we don't like who he claims to be. And we don't want to respond to who he is. If he is who he says he is, if he is uh, what he testifies to be and what Matthew's gospel testifies that he is, then we have to respond to him with worship and obedience and devotion. Um, there's a short story by, uh, by the great American short story writer Flannery O'Connor called The Good Man is Hard to Find. And in the story, there's this character. Uh, he, he's a violent outlaw, um, but, but he, he, a terrible person, uh, the villain of the story, really. But he, he gets this one thing right. Um, one of his lines in the story is this. He says, If Jesus did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. 
And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left. He gets it. He's a villain of the story, but he gets this. If Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did, then there's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. You can't take something you like about Jesus, the part you find convenient and compelling, and say, well, I'll take that, but not the whole Christ. No, you take all of him, and you bow to him, and you worship him, and you give your life to following after him. And brothers and sisters, what I want us to see this morning, what, what, what our Lord God wants us to see from Matthew 22, uh, what Matthew is showing us, what Jesus is showing us, with perfect clarity is who Christ is. This is one of the clearest places where Christ tells us who he is. And, and as he does so, he's not just trying to uh, win this debate that's been going on now for several chapters with the Pharisees, but he is demanding their worship and he's demanding our worship and he's appealing to us to trust in him, the God-man, as our only Savior he, looks, uh, he points us to two things. Christ tells us two things about his identity here. The first thing is that he is the son of David. The son of David. That's our first heading. Um, as we come to the end of chapter 22, we're at yet another turning point in Matthew's gospel. Um, Jesus entered Jerusalem um, on Sunday of Passion Week, which is where we're in. He enters Jerusalem uh, in, in chapter 21 of Matthew, claiming to be the Messiah. And since he's done that, um, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they've been going head to head with Jesus. They're firing question after question after question at Jesus. And every single one backfires uh, because Christ is brilliant and he is wisdom itself. And they are in the folly of their unbelief. And every question that comes, he turns back on them, showing their hypocrisy and their pride. It, it's... Um, it's so humbling for them. They went to the best schools in Jerusalem. Jesus is this nobody from Nazareth, son of a carpenter. And he is trouncing them, in a sense, with his divine wisdom. Um, and the crowd's watching. And they see how this is playing out. Um, Jesus silencing their questions. And now Jesus turns and he asks them one final question. And it's an appeal to them, calling them to repent, um, telling them very clearly who he is. He asks them, beginning in verse 42, he says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? It's so interesting. Um, uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary talking about this, uh, points out that, that Jesus' attention is on the thing that our attention should be on, isn't it? The Pharisees have been bringing him all these other questions about all these other things, but they haven't asked him about who the Christ is. I mean, what greater, what, what more important question could they be asking him than about who the Christ is? Instead, they're just trying to trap him with their questions about the law, but Jesus says, here's the question, who's the Christ? And so we ask them, whose, whose son is, is, is the Christ? He's not asking uh, who the, the literal father of, uh, of the Christ would be, but um, who, whom the Christ would be descended from. Um, now, for Jesus to ask the theological elite 
that question would be sort of like going to um, getting a group of pastors together or seminary professors and going and saying, uh, I've, got a, I've got a question for you, a real stumper. Um, who made you? Right? That's children's catechism question and answer one. Everybody, we all know that. God. That's the answer. Um, it's interesting that Christ starts with this question. It's an easy, easy answer. And they give the right answer right away. David. We all know that. King David is the one who is the ancestor of the Christ. A quick look at several key Old Testament texts makes it clear why they believe this. This is, this is a true belief. Um, we see it um, 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 to 14. 2 Samuel 7, critical passage, uh, just one of, the, one, of the, one of those major points in the Old Testament uh, where God is, uh, is making his covenant with David there. And this is what God says um, regarding uh, David's descendant. He says, 2 Samuel 7, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now that's, that's a prophecy that, that looks a little bit like it's fulfilled with David's son Solomon, who builds the house, the temple, but God builds him a dynasty. Uh, but, but it's talking there about someone who's much greater than Solomon, because the text says, uh, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's looking forward to great David's greater son, the greater one than even Solomon, the one who would be the Messiah. This prophecy is then picked up. Uh, Isaiah picks it up. Isaiah 11, verse 1, says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What's, what's that about? Well, Jesse, of course, that's David's father. Uh, so the stump of Jesse, that's referring to how uh, as the exile comes, uh, the, the line of kings appears to be cut off. But there's going to be new life coming from that stump that was cut down, the stump of that line. And that, that, that shoot that comes forth is going to be the new David, the greater David, the Messiah. Um, this is picked up again um, at the, uh, later on in chapter 11 of Isaiah. Isaiah 11, verse 10, makes it clear. This isn't just any king. This isn't just David uh, recycled. But this is, this is, uh, this is better. Um, uh, eleven ten says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. All the nations are going to be giving homage to this king, this Christ, son of David. And then Jeremiah, another text, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, picks up the theme as well. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. These texts, and there are others, and so the, the Pharisees, the Jews, they've studied these texts, and it's clear to them that Christ will be the great David's greater son, the king descended from David, who will rescue them and bring them salvation from all their enemies in the last days. So Jesus, as he asks this question, is he denying this? No, not at all. He affirms it with them. 
Uh, Matthew's Gospel makes this clear. The very first verse of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus Christ, Son of David. Um, and we've just heard, Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem. And what have the crowds been saying? Hosanna to the Son of David. And Jesus did not silence them. The Pharisees told him to silence them. He said, no, if, if they didn't cry out, the very stones would cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. So Jesus is not denying that the Christ is the Son of David. Um, he upholds their belief, but he's challenging it. He's saying it's, it's, there's more. On the one hand, they've misunderstood what it means that the Christ will be the Son of David. And Jesus has been challenging that throughout his ministry. If you look at David's life, you see him as this great hero figure, this strong warrior king. But there's another note in David's life, isn't there? If you read the Psalms, how much sorrow there is in David's life. If you read 1 Samuel, how much suffering he goes through before he becomes king. Hunted like a dog through the Judean wilderness. And Jesus is saying... I'm also the man of sorrows and the suffering servant who, who is humiliated, humbled, and serves before he's exalted and glorified. And that's who the Christ is as, as the son of David. Um, he's been telling them over and over this. Um, he's been saying to them that he is going to, um, he's going to suffer many things, that he's going to even be crucified. Um, and he is uh, he's challenging them to, to believe this about the Christ as well. Um, but there is more still that the Jews did not expect. Um, not only did they not expect a Messiah who would be so humble as Jesus has been, but they did not expect a Messiah who would be so divine. They, they expected a mere human king. But Jesus comes so much more humble than they expected, and also so much more powerful and authoritative and divine than they expected. He has more authority than David ever had. He silences storms, calms the storm with just a single word. He raises the dead. He heals lepers with a touch. He, he heals the blind. He's doing all these things, and he's showing all his, all his works are showing that there's something more here than just another human king. They, uh, they want a Christ that they can control. And he's showing them that he is not a tame Christ. He is not a Christ they can control. Jesus challenges them to show them that he is indeed the Son of God. And this is our second, the second point. So he's the Son of David, yes. Also, he wants them to see this. And this is the main thing. The Son of God. Um, he asks a follow-up question. So his first question, whose son is the Christ, son of David? They get that right. And then he asks them the follow-up. Uh, he says, um, uh, verses 43 to 45, he says, well, how then does David, in the Spirit, so inspired by the Spirit, writing the infallible Word of God, how does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus' argument here is digging deep into Psalm 110. Um, he's, he's starting with something the Pharisees already agree on, that David is the author of Psalm 110. 
and that in Psalm 110, David is, is talking about the Messiah who will come. Um, David's not talking about himself in Psalm 110. He's talking about someone else in Psalm 110, about the king who's going to descend from him. All this the Pharisees would have agreed with Jesus on, uh, granted him the, that point. But then Jesus points out the very obvious problem in their thinking then about Psalm 110. He says, David calls his descendant Lord. He calls his son Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my, David's Lord, um, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I don't know what it's like in your house, but in my house, uh, I don't call my sons Lord. Um, we have a pretty egalitarian society, culture, pretty broadly, but I don't hear anyone calling their children Lord and Master. Um, that's just not how we, how we do things. Uh, to say someone is Lord and Master means they have authority over you. They have higher rank than you do. They're greater than, than you are. Um, and especially in their culture, for someone to call his son Lord would be unthinkable. Um, but David, King David, Israel's greatest king, calls his son Lord. How can that be possible? That's the question Jesus is asking. Well, he has to be more than human, doesn't he? He has to be more than just David's son. He has to be divine if he's going to be David's descendant and yet greater than David. Um, that's, that's the point Jesus is making. And if you look at Psalm 110, the context, what's going on in the other verses in Psalm 110, really uh, bear this out as well, reinforce this. Um, it's on page 541 in the Bible, the Pew Bible, by the way, Psalm 110. I'm going to spend a little time there now as we look at how Psalm 110 points us so clearly to uh, the divinity of the Messiah to come. Um, so the opening three verses make it crystal clear that David is not describing himself. Uh, over and over, he's speaking in the second person. He says, you, this is a psalm about the Messiah. It's actually a psalm spoken directly to the Messiah. Verses 1 through 3 again, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is God speaking to the Messiah. The Lord, and now it's David speaking, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. David, speaking of the Messiah. Rule in the midst of your enemies. David, speaking to the Messiah. Uh, uh, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you, Messiah, have the dew of your youth. Um, so David saying all these things is saying that the Messiah is going to be so much greater than him. He's going to rule over his enemies. He's going to be marked by holiness and glory. Uh, notes of youthfulness there, even eternal life perhaps being suggested. And then verse 4. Verse 4 gets really interesting. Um, because in verse 4 he says that this king, the Messiah king, is not just going to be a king. He'll be a priest too. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn, will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, in the Old Testament, the kings could not be priests. The priests, not kings. Um, priests came from the tribe 
of Levi. Kings came from the tribe of Judah. And it was designed that way, um, strictly enforced. But here God is referencing an older priesthood. He's talking about this guy, Melchizedek, who shows up way back in Genesis as the priest of God. Seems to come out of nowhere and then disappear off the stage of history after his interaction with Abraham there. He, in, Genesis, uh, in Genesis 14, he, he blesses Abraham. He's this priest figure, the mysterious figure who, who is greater than Abraham and blesses him. And, and, and this Psalm 110 is telling us that the Messiah to come is not only going to be David's son, king, but also, he's going to share the priesthood of a higher and older priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And verse 4 says that he's going to be a priest forever. Not just temporary term priest, but forever priest who makes a sacrifice that covers sin once for all, who enters the holy place, the holy of holies, and doesn't leave, but remains there. Hebrews picks up all these things and unpacks them. So this king will be a priest. No descendant of David who was only a descendant of David could be king and priest. It has to be someone more than mere man. Verse 5 then adds to this. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. Verse 1 said, the Messiah is at God's right hand. Verse 5 says, God is at the Messiah's right hand. Almost an interchangeability here between them. They act as one and the same. The Messiah is pictured as the psalm unfolds from that point as reigning with God and conquering together with God. Um, So this is Jesus' point, brothers and sisters. Psalm 110 makes it clear that the Christ had to be more than just a man. That the Christ would in fact be on par with God himself. In, 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 in some incomprehensible way, the Messiah would be God and man together in one person. This is Jesus' claim then before the Pharisees that he is the Christ, descendant of David, and he is God himself. This is just stunning to consider. He's standing before the Pharisees. And there he is, true flesh and blood man, just like us in in everything except sin, very ordinary humanity in in every respect except except that without sin. He he, he laughed and cried and got sick and every part of our humanity he shared. His body was aging at a normal rate. And if it had not been God's providence for him to be crucified in his 30s, he would have gotten older. And older, he would have aged as we age because he was sharing our humanity and all of its, uh, and all, even under the effects of, of sin, though without the guilt of sin. So he's standing before them in this way as a man, fully man. And yet, as he stands before them, he is also telling them that he is the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. Just as fully as he's living, breathing man before them. He is very God, a very God. He is the one who said in Genesis 1-1, let there be, and there was. He is the one who created all things. Um, the other, other passages of Scripture bear this out for us. Uh, John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. Um, Colossians 2, 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus standing before them is, is, is God himself in the flesh, their maker, their sustainer, the one who is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. He's beyond the bounds of space and time. And yet he's entered space and time. And to do it, he didn't stop being God. He didn't give up his divinity to become man. And he didn't mix divinity and humanity into some new blend. But he stayed two distinct natures in one unified person. It's a staggering and incomprehensible mystery. And it should be, brothers and sisters. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It is beyond the frame of anything we can imagine. And to accept that, we have to humble ourselves. Bow before the mystery of the God-man. To accept that Jesus is one divine person with two distinct united natures, a human nature and a divine nature, requires that you bow before him Humble yourself before him in submission and in awe. There are so many heresies about Christ, about, about his, 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 his person, about his nature, because people try to solve the mystery and do away with the mystery that we can't comprehend. They try to, we try to make it something that we can wrap our brains around. Um, we, we, people have tried to say Jesus was fully God, but he just took on man like a, like a puppet or a robot or just a, a mask, uh, not true humanity. Um, others say that he's just a kind of superman, man that God has sort of uh, supercharged, um, but not really fully divine. But Jesus himself, brothers and sisters, insists that he is God and man. It's a mystery that we cannot comprehend. And we need to bow before him and accept that. And brothers and sisters, we need to worship him for it. And this is where, uh, this, is where this text really comes home to challenge us. Um, it's one thing to be able to recite, as we so often do, the creed. Nicene Creed. Very God, a very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And it's one thing to recite that, or as we did this morning from the Westminster Confession, similar words. It's one thing to say it with your mouth that Jesus is God. But it's another thing, dear brothers and sisters, to have that stamped on your heart that he is God. And this is why the Pharisees had such a hard time with Jesus' interpretation of Psalm 110. They couldn't argue with his exegesis. They, he, he showed it to them. It was so clear. Uh, but, but verse 46 says, No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. They, they couldn't argue with him. Of course, the Christ has to be God come in the flesh. But their hurdle for accepting this was that they did not want to worship him. If they acknowledge what Jesus was saying and acknowledge that he was the Christ, God and man, they would have to get down on their knees right now and bow before him and give their lives away to following him. And they didn't want to do that. And that is our struggle, too. Um, we might confess with our lips, but functionally, do we deny that he is God? 
Do we deny with our hearts and with our lives that he has all authority over all of our lives? The reason we we struggle against him is not because um, it's not clear who he is or it's not convincing who he is, but because um, we realize deep down the truth of what uh, the misfit and the, the character in the Flannery O'Connor story said as we started. Uh, if Jesus did what he said, it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. If he's God, he owns you and every square inch of your life is, your, is his and you owe all to him. And so the, the sheer force of the fact that Jesus is God demands everything from you and that's why it's so hard for us to accept it's his demand, the, the very demand of who he is on us. And, and yet, brothers and sisters, there's more than just a brute demand in the fact of his divinity. Um, there is something here that should call out our love and our devotion and our worship and our thanks. And we should jump at who he is and, and, and want to give everything away to follow after him and have him. Um, We've been considering the what of Jesus, the God-man, but we haven't, we haven't mentioned the why. Why did eternal Son of God become man? Why, in Matthew 22, is God himself in a human form debating with those stubborn, unbelieving Pharisees? Why would God condescend to come down and take on human nature and do that. Why did he come down to endure mocking and scorning and slandering and to be whipped and, 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 and abused and, and hurt and crucified and bear the wrath of God and then buried in a tomb? Because he so loved the world. That's why God became man. Because he came down for our salvation. Because of his love for us. There's an old hymn, old 17th century hymn. puts it wonderfully. It says, love caused your incarnation. Love brought you down to me. Your thirst for my salvation procured my liberty. God desired to save a people. To save not just a people, but to save you for himself. And he loved you. And out of that love, chose you, called you and then became man that he might die for your sins. You need two things to be right with God. You need to have your sins debt paid. And it has to be a human sacrifice to pay that debt. Human sin requires human payment. That's why in the Old Testament, all the goats and oxen and doves and all of it didn't pay for a single offense. It has to be human payment for human sin. So God becomes man so that he can be the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he becomes man, to remove all our guilt. He becomes completely human so that our complete humanity can be guilt-free, cleansed, forgiven before God. He also had to be God as well. A single human sacrifice would not be enough for the 
infinite debt that is owed to, to God for the offenses that we've done against Him. So God Himself comes in the flesh to be both God and man. So that the one drop of blood would be a worthy payment for all the crimes we've done against our God. We also need a record of righteousness. And we need human righteousness. We ever wonder, why couldn't God just impute His own righteousness to us? Why did He have to send Christ? Because we need a human righteousness to stand before God in, clothed with. But what human can have a perfect righteousness to stand before God? So God becomes man to accomplish for us a perfect record of human righteousness to give us, to cover us before Almighty God. We need a mediator between God and man who is himself both God and man. If Jesus was not both God and man, brothers and sisters, we have no salvation and we die condemned. St. Augustine, 4th century bishop, has a sermon on this very text. And uh, he says this in his sermon, Unless our Lord Jesus Christ had vouchsafed to become man, man had perished. He was made that which he made, that what he made might not perish. Brothers and sisters, you are a sinner who deserves the wrath of God. But God has sent his Son, fully God, down to become fully man, to share all that you are, and take your sin on himself and give you in exchange a perfect righteousness of his own. And then he rose from the dead and entered heaven so that a man is in heaven. And you will go there with him if you're trusting in him. He has come to save all that you are for himself. And so this is, as, as Jesus stands before us, fully God, fully man, he calls for all our worship all our submission, all our devotion. And He's worthy of all our love. Let's pray. Lord, even as You have loved us and given Your Son for us, given all that You have to give, Lord, let us respond with gratitude and thanks and faith, giving You nothing less than all that we are. Give away everything and take Christ. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for our, our doubt and unbelief and resistance to you. We pray that you'd work faith in our hearts, that we might embrace Christ fully as he's freely offered to us in the gospel. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.